You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about fundraising from private capital. I know we have a lot of asset managers and sponsors in the listenership of the show, so it's a very timely topic. And joining me today, we have Shifra Antonoff, Global Head of Customer Experience at Prequin. So Shifra, I think you are the perfect guest to cover this topic today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. And I know Prequin, you you all have tons of data. And so you have kind of the, the inside track on some of this information. Um, but for those in our audience who aren't aware, could you give us a brief introduction to Prequin and your role at the company? Absolutely. Prequin is the leading provider of market intelligence on alternative assets data. And we have relationships. We've been in the business for several decades. And we gather information from LPs and GPs globally. We have a huge comprehensive database of companies' deals as well. And we also provide insights into the macroeconomic themes that we see based on the data. So what I'll be speaking to today is the rolled up view of where we see alternatives in, in conjunction with the high net worth investor community. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the 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 lead, I guess, is is nowhere but up, right? Uh, <laughs> but it's a little more complicated than that, obviously. And, you know, this this year, 2023, it's it's turning out to be a complicated year because on the one hand, I would say, you know, I, I, well, I'm host of the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm bullish on alts and I'm bullish on capital raising and alts, but it's also, it's a tough capital raising environment, you know, in general, not every asset class, but in general, it's just a tough environment. Um, but we're going to be looking into this report today and I'll make sure to link to this in our show notes published by Prequin. It's titled Fundraising from Private Wealth, A Guide to Raising Capital. And the report begins with discussing the challenges right now in raising capital from institutional investors. Why don't we start with that, Shifra? Could you talk a little bit about that challenge that asset managers that sponsors are having right now, raising capital from institutions? Absolutely. When we look at our data, we see relatively muted expectations on fundraising and Parisian themes in the data. And certainly we've had a very tough 2022. We saw global equity markets drop around 18% when you look at the MSCI Acqui Index. US bond markets were the worst ever in history with all the rate hikes. And what that presented a lot of institutional investors was this dilemma, the denominator effect, which we have been talking about. So what that is, is where you have allocators who have allocations to equities, traditional fixed income, as well as alternatives. All of a sudden, the equity proportion and the and the fixed income proportion, the, the um, traditional investment drops in value. However, the alternatives component 
um, doesn't drop at least at the same level magnitude. So the alternatives proportion has actually overtaken the portfolio in terms of it's, it's risen proportionally. And many of the allocators that we speak to have a target allocation. So let's say your target allocation is 15% alternatives. All of a sudden, your other proportions are coming down. It's, it become, you start to uh, exceed your target. Mm-hmm. And when it gets to that point, while you might want to allocate to new investments, you just you really can't move forward. And many of the conferences that I've attended and I've spoken with a lot of allocators have said, we're very interested, but come back to us in 2024. <laughs> um, yeah. So that what this presents is a real challenge. We've seen a material slowdown um, in terms of just CAGR. 5% CAGR um, is the expected growth rate for private capital fundraising over the next six years. Just putting that in perspective, from 2015 to 2021, the CAGR was 13%. And prior to the, that, the, the incremental years were in the double digits. So we are you definitely seeing it in our numbers. And then regionally, we see the Nor- North America still is showing the biggest growth rate of all the regions. Europe is negative, actually, at this point. APAC is is far behind. So it it is a challenge, but this all of a sudden presents opportunities to others in the space, other types of institutions, because there's really a growing market. In alternative assets, what we're projecting is that AUM, which is currently at around 13 trillion today across all asset classes of alternatives, and that includes private capital and hedge fund asset classes, that's expected to grow at a 9% CAGR to reach more than 23 trillion in 2027. Massive, huge growth, huge opportunity. Um, but from you know near-term perspective, we, we are seeing these challenges. And even asset classes like private credit and infrastructure that we know are hot right now mm-hmm. have seen massive slowdowns um, and uh, versus what the levels were before. Well, that's so interesting. So even the relatively, because I mean, private credit is so relatively, it's just a darling right now, but there's just, there's less, there's less overall capital, I suppose, to be allocated to your point, institutional capital, fresh capital, I suppose, has dried up because they're now overweight to Mm -hmm. their targets within their portfolios their institutional guardrails, you know, so they can't just be like, well, but we still really like this product. So we're going to just tactically go way overweight in alts like that. That's that might get you fired if you manage a pension fund. Right. So you're not you're not going to do that. And then I think what is adding fuel on the fire is some of these alternative products like take B-REIT. I'll pick on B-REIT. You know, when you compare B-REIT to a publicly traded REIT, well, the publicly traded REITs are trading at a discount to NAV, right? And they are, they're mark to market and they've taken that haircut, whereas BREIT relatively hasn't. So if that's mm-hmm. in your portfolio, I guess I don't know how they do valuations internally, like at a pension fund or institution, but if you have BREIT and you're showing it at that, you know, sticker price, sticker NAV, wherever it's at right now, it's just going to make that overweight problem even worse, right? Absolutely. And it's interesting with the market dynamics now. I mean, I think year to date, S and P five hundred is now up thirteen percent. Mm-hmm. Some are saying we might be in bull territory. 
who knows? We'll see what happens with the, um, the Fed tomorrow, but indications are possibly that they keep things the same and CPI going down. So we may be reversing that denominator effect, which is the hope. And as we do that, we'll then see things sort of uh, some activity back in the market, both fundraising and deal activity as, as well. But another interesting point to hit on with even, you know, private credit, I actually recently spoke at um, about private debt at, at one of the conferences, and we were looking at the flows in private debt, and they're much more concentrated toward the more established managers. So um, mm. the first time fund managers are struggling mightily to raise money. So if you're an LP, if you're, you know, you want to tell your board, I'm allocating, then you better allocate to a Blackstone or a KKR. It's got to be an established name. Um, at what we saw in our data on the private credit side is that um, 50% of the capital that, that's been um, been allocated has gone to the top 10 um, managers. Uh, massive, massive concentration now. Um, in uh, in capital. And that's not just in private credit, but in other pockets of the market. We see it in real estate, private real estate. Um, we're seeing it venture. We're seeing it private equity, heavy concentration to the more established names in the space. Yeah. And I mean, with institutional investors, that kind of reminds me of the maxim in, te in tech, of course, but mm -hmm. nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Right. And so I think that's you know, with a lot of institutional investors, obviously, you know, there's whatever safety and numbers, you know, everybody's investing with Blackstone or, or whatever. I do think that, you know, some of these larger institutional type asset managers, they've had some negative headlines. And I have to say on the, on the retail level, when I say retail, I mean, smaller family offices, high net worth, very high net worth. Um, you know, some of their actions or some of those news headlines have been a turnoff for some of the the more mass affluent or very high net worth private wealth. So let's shift. And, and then actually, I should say that's where I also see the opportunity for these smaller sponsors and the smaller asset managers. You know, you mentioned the the startup private credit funds or the smaller VC funds. Like, absolutely, they're struggling. But at the same time, you know, with uh, you know, especially with private equity real estate growth of these five hundred six Cs. You're seeing these smaller independent sponsors own the relationship with their LPs. Mm -hmm. And it sure it might be a tough year, but I think they're gonna come out the other side stronger and it's gonna be a little bit more of a, a balanced ecosystem. Do you think there's any merit to that? Oh, absolutely. I think there's a lot of opportunity and you wanna take hold of it before we see it in our data. You know, valuations are are going to turn around. And, um, you know, what, another thing uh, that we looked at from a VC perspective, the early stage shows a lot of opportunity and promise. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be drawing interest right now. And then the other piece that we're hearing thematically is secondaries, because you're further in the J curve. And um, there, there's actually, that's one part of the market I would say is, is still growing, is the secondaries part um, of the market. So there, there are abundant opportunities. And even, you know, real estate, um, you can't speak about it in a monolithic way. So there are different right. asset classes, maybe some commercial real estate may be depressed and certain markets have higher vacancies than others, but there are still opportunities there as well. And when we look at you know, the multifamily housing, that's doing well still, logistics as well. So you have to look at things um, from a comprehensive fashion. You need to work and do your due diligence. 
A hundred percent. And interesting that you brought up secondaries. It almost reminds me, secondaries right now remind me of private credit like a year ago. An asset class I'm aware of, but I feel like I was hearing it uh, you know, three times a month and now I'm hearing about it three times a day, right? But when, I mean, here's the thing, valuations are more attractive now mm -hmm. compared to 18 months, 24 months ago. So sure, it's harder to raise capital, but also depending on the asset class, you're getting in at a much lower cost basis, much more attractive valuation. Mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of the appeal for individual investors. So you know, we've talked about institutionals and there's this pivot now, uh, necessary pivot, right? I, I don't even know that it's a pivot that all these asset managers want to make, but when you're having a tough time raising capital from institutional investors, you're going to have to shift to family offices, to ultra high net worth, to the mass affluent, you know, depending on what type of offerings you have. Is that, I mean, when, when did you see that pivot really start in earnest? Is it just that it's accelerating this year because of those headwinds? No, I mean, I think there have been historical pushes from a regulatory perspective to get more funds into alternatives, whether it's LTIF in London and UK, that didn't really take off LTAF. Uh, it's we've been talking about accredited investors for a while. Um, we'd love it in four hundred one ks. So I, I do think it's something that we have been speaking about. And depending on the region or market, you know, there are pension funds in Mexico that will allocate to alternatives. There are some regimes that are more progressive in a way towards alternatives. And the U.S. is still a place where it's being discussed. Um, I do think it's been probably in the last year and a half that we've been hearing about it more predominantly about high net worth investors mm -hmm. getting into the fray. And it's Bain Capital actually came out with a study recently and looking at the, the opportunity, the TAM of the market, so to speak, about, um, I would say around 130 to 140 trillion in assets is um, really representing the private wealth space. That's their whole pool. But, um, and that's a massive opportunity there. But in terms of the allocation to alternatives, it's very low. So I remember I was saying 13 trillion is our AUM today when we, when we compute AUM for alternatives. Maybe it's under 2 trillion is the private wealth space. So there's abundant opportunity when you think about it. And it, the question is, a big piece is investor education. So we know we're getting a lot of demands from clients. Can you come you know, teach our advisors, teach us how to talk about alternatives? So mm -hmm. the education is a big part. Um, there are questions about liquidity and what is that going to mean, these longer lockup periods. And so we need to sort of explain those concepts. How do you um, how do you reach uh, the advisors? And there are a number of platforms out there as well that do the connection points. There's B two C like Moonfair, um, and then there's also business to business like iCapital, where LP is um, effectively they will will connect uh, GPs and LPs on the platform themselves, and they'll have these feeder funds. So, and then there's the direct channel where some GPs are able to reach out directly and court these family offices. So it's there are whole uh, levels and strata in our report that we talk about in more detail about how you can do it and how you approach that. And you know, you mentioned in the in the report, you talk about the different strategies you're seeing from asset managers, from investment sponsors. 
Where do you see the most momentum? I mean, it, you know, I guess just due to the nature of this podcast, the events that we run at Wealth Channel, we interact with so many smaller independent or mid-sized uh, asset managers who are releasing 506C offerings and they're owning that relationship between that, you know, them as a sponsor direct to that high net worth investor or direct to that family office. And to me, I think that's, you know, I'm kind of a marketing guy, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. <laughs> I kind of, my interests sit between marketing and finance and how those things intersect. And I, I love the idea of these asset managers who can own those direct relationships, because I think that's, that's a long-term enterprise value, right? That's equity. Um, but how, how quickly is that really catching on that model of sponsors wanting to just directly own that relationship? And it, again, we're talking about with accredited investors, not necessarily crowdfunding yeah. or anything like that. I think certain thematically, it seems one of the biggest is the direct channel. So the, this, the firms like Blackstone that actually have the infrastructure to be able to work with these smaller players, smaller ticket sizes and, and build that out, um, mm -hmm. that seems to be predominant. But the business to business, like iCapital that facilitates the flows between GPs and private wealth is really taking off. So they have today... I sound like I'm advertising for them, but... I'm, <laughs> oh, thousand, you know what? It's, it's, a, it's we can, okay. We've had iCapital... Yeah. I've had iCapital on the show multiple times. We've had them at our events. We like iCapital. So don't be afraid to yeah. talk them up. I know they have huge, huge momentum. Yeah. Huge momentum. I mean, their tech creates that connection with the asset mm -hmm. manager GPs. They have, uh, they manage over a thousand feeder funds on behalf of GPs and they have an extensive research and education team and they provide a lot of that education. Um, actually, they, I didn't realize they were only founded 10 years ago. And they have more than a thousand employees, 150 billion of platform assets um, across seven offices internationally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're really picking that up um, for sure. But I feel like the direct channel is probably the, bi the biggest today, but who knows in the future where, um, where that will lead. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, talking business to business and iCapital case, other platforms like that. The key is, is they've just made it easier, right? I mean, when, when when I'm thinking about advisors and I'm not an advisor, but I can certainly empathize with just how much work advisors have to do with client relationships, with reporting, just all of it. And so it's it's like, it's no mystery why alternative investments really took a while to gain traction. They, they, they're, they were clunky, they were complex, there was a lot of work just to sort of invest in them and do the paperwork and track them. iCapital case, those sorts of platforms have just made it so much easier for advisors to offer alternatives to their clients. So to me, that's that was just a fundamental game changer. Um, Absolutely. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about family offices, you know, because sometimes I'll talk with asset managers, they are you know, dipping their toes, <laughs> let's say the direct channel and they, they kind of family offices, ultra high net worth is where they want to start just because the average ticket size, the average check size so much higher. So they view it as more efficient. Um, but there really aren't that many family offices, right? In your report. I mean, every, everyone's date on this is a little bit different. Everyone defines family office a little bit mm -hmm. differently, but this sounds about right to me. Um, you know, the, the Kaya 
suggested they were in the region of 10,000 family offices globally in 2018. Mm-hmm. So this is a while ago, but between three and 5,000 in the US. So there's probably a few more than that now. But at the end of the day, that's, you know, that's uh, what, four figures, family mm-hmm. offices. Mm-hmm. So how much success are these asset managers having in reaching family offices with their fundraising? You know, I feel like it's it's been something that's been talked for a while. Looking at the numbers, the proportion is still low from mm-hmm. an allocation perspective. Um, so I don't. I think it's starting, but I I feel like we're at the beginning and it's very early days. Um, you know, one thing that we did look at is how over allocated or under allocated different institution types have been. And family offices are the least. They they have so much headroom to allocate further. So that that seems to be coming through in our data. So, Chef, I'm I'm sorry. Do you actually think that family offices might be behind? Yes. Regular high net worth in terms of that. Okay, um, well, um, fa- oh, I, I was talking about family offices. I was combining it together, fa- family offices and and uh, high net worth. Oh yeah, um, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, okay, yeah, no, yeah. I was so, to me, I, it, the thing with family offices is they're all over the map, right? The, the 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 numbers, the data that you brought up with high net worth, I mean, they're incredibly under allocated to alternative investments, right? Mm-hmm. The thing when I speak with families, ultra high net worth. They're just all over the map. Like I, anecdotally, I can think of one family office that I talked to. Their allocation to alts, in, in their words, ninety nine percent. There definitely are levels in the Bain report. If my memory serves me well, the the chart certainly the ultra high net worth has the highest proportion okay. um, of them, but it still was like sixteen or seventeen percent of the alternate you know the space, which that's not you know that's not a huge number, I would say. No, no, it isn't a huge number, but I guess turning ahead now, getting to this mass affluent high net worth, we'll we'll throw very high net worth in there. You know, your quote unquote everyday millionaires, this is, I think, really where the most, there's the most headroom. I I like that. Can I steal that verbiage, Shifra, the most headroom? (laughs) Yes. Do, do, Do you think that, you know, asset managers have traction there right now, or are they still trying to find their traction? Yeah, I, I think they're, you know, from the, the folks we've been speaking to, they're still building out their programming and they're trying to figure out, okay, which which funds do I market? And they're at various stages, some more ahead than others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's, it's uh, to me, it's still early days. So depending on the asset manager, if, if I can read between the lines, some of them have traction, you know, depending on how they're plugged in, what platforms mm-hmm. they're plugged into or with direct, some of them are still trying to find that traction. Do you yeah. think they're gonna do you think they're gonna find it in the next few years? I mean, let's let's talk about I know I know you don't have a crystal ball, but mm-hmm. you have a lot of data. You talk with a lot of folks in the industry. Do you think they're gonna find it? I think they're getting there. They're they're upskilling in a lot of ways. I know, for instance, you know, take I'm having a conversation with one of the CFA societies tomorrow, actually, and CFA historically was an area there. They did some alts. There's definitely some alternatives on the CFA exams, but Kaya is known right as the source right. for alts. But but CFA is now um, what I would have considered mainstream investment space, really trying to upskill. Um, all of the CFA members on these topics. And so that tells me that um, we're looking at a world of 
ultimately mainstreaming of alternatives. That's where um, we, we do see the industry and everyone is starting to talk about it. So I do think there's a first mover advantage, certainly for those who get in the space early. Um, and you have to, you got to market to our capital and to Moonfair and all these platforms. I mean, I was looking at the Moonfair site. They are really, they only accept 5% of the funds that um, actually try to to get listed on their platform. They go through set, the scrutiny, the level of review. So you, I, I'm not sure of their criteria, but mm-hmm. to tick the boxes and really even get access to these communities, um, it, it's um, it's a long process. So, you know, it's also expensive though. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the thing for asset managers, for sponsors. It's It's hard enough. To, to put together a, a good offering, right? That that uh, <laughs> offers strong value to investors. Then the distribution, it's like a whole other animal, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's like you need an entirely you need this second skill set. That's why I, I say my own interest at this intersection of marketing. Maybe that's not quite the word right word, but in finance, it's like it it doesn't matter how good your fund is mm-hmm. if you can't communicate it and explain why it offers value. And this is whether you are trying to sell it to the Harvard Endowment or to John and Jane Lunchpail, you know, accredited investor down the street, you have to communicate its value. And I think, you know, in like 2021, it seemed like almost everyone was succeeding with fundraising. And right now, it's really uh, feels like we're almost winnowing the herd. I hate to say that, but it's the cycles of capitalism, right? Yeah. Um, it, and are you seeing that in data at Prequin? I mean, are you seeing any smaller asset managers leaving the space or maybe cutting some product lines or maybe saying, you know, we're only going to focus on this specific asset class, not, you know, these other ones, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, so... Some are, you know, sizing down uh, their shop right now, and they're trying to find ways to market. And I've actually, we've heard from several on the fundraising side who are looking to even change strategy mm-hmm. and pivot to some of the more more of, uh, in favor or move into impact or ESG. So really reading the room, if you will, of what are people interested in real assets, infrastructures, trying to pivot into ways. And we have some clients who really want to work and with us on, they want to change their strategy. And on our platform, we, we reflect that data and they want help making sure that we're reflecting the strategy appropriately as they move into a new space or, or new types of mandates, if you will. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, the, the institutional side, it's one that I'm less familiar with, but you mentioned ESG. And to me, that's where it's opportunity for sponsors. Mm-hmm. Institutions might say, okay, we're overweight real assets or we're overweight alternatives right now. But then we have this other mandate to invest mm-hmm. in this sort of ESG asset class or ESG mm-hmm. fund. So you can almost, as an asset manager, you're basically saying you can reverse engineer that and say, what are the, what are the institutionals? What do they need to invest in? Yep. Okay, let, let's go build that. Uh, exactly. One of the things we ran a survey and 65% of the allocators said that ESG is a make or break for them. And I would imagine that family offices are no different. If anything, uh, as you- are those, heard, I'm sorry, are those institutional allocators? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. 
but I would expect family offices to have a similar mindset of, of wanting to, what is a green investment? What is something, you know, I, I, I want to, I want my money to go towards something that will create maybe some positive impact on, on the world, on the environment. So uh, I imagine that that's going to be more in favor. And we actually do capture um, ESG on our platform as well in the private space. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, my experience, I, I think you're right with family offices, huge interest in impact, 100%. I, th- I think the breaking point might be ESG itself, even the phrase. Increasingly, I'm finding that is is associated with institutional investors, with pension funds, with those sorts of investors. And at the retail level, there's there's almost there's virtually zero interest in ESG per se, like with that exact verbiage at the retail level. Mm-hmm. But everyone is interested in impact, you know. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a little. This is where I think between the institutional investment world, capital raising from institutionals versus truly private capital, it's it is a little bit different. It's there's a little it's bit different. Yeah, there's differences in language. Mm-hmm. Right, like ESG might be a, a a popular word with institutional investors. I think it's becoming kind of a poison word sometimes with private capital, and then you know also just just not only the verbiage but just uh, communicating uh, you know the value proposition because for an institutional investor they're going to be driven by different motivators, different incentives mm-hmm. versus you know investors investing their own money. There's a mm-hmm. little bit of a different viewpoint there, right? Most definitely. I mean, you do need to answer to your board. When you look at a CalPERS or a CalSTRS, they definitely, uh, these are things that they're paying attention to, particularly also diversity, um, investing in companies that that have, um, you know, more equality. Um, And what I am seeing is it's also, there's a generational shift. Uh, To be honest, I talk to my kids, they're very interested in knowing where their money is going and that it is going to benefit the environment. The millennial generation, really looks at this more and they're going to be entering that retail space. So it's going to be interesting how that might shift when, as we look at the next five to 10 years on the retail side. Yeah, absolutely. And we know uh, in terms of surveys, big shifts with millennials, with Gen Z also more open to alternative investments. So I, I agree as that, uh, you know, these younger generations mature as they have increasing assets, it is going to be a, a, a landmark, a, a big shift in terms of capital raising, even even in terms of just portfolio models. I think I think younger folks have a little bit of a different mindset. You know, they, this generation, Gen Z, like grew up with crypto boom and bust. It's mm-hmm. like, <laughs> so it's just totally different. Well, I, I, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but Schiffer, I'd love to pick your brain if if you could reach into sure. your crystal ball. Mm-hmm. You know, what are some other trends? You know, given the data that you see, all the folks that you talk to, Prequin, are there any trends that are going to surprise us in the next couple of years across the alternatives landscape, across the fundraising landscape? Is there anything maybe that you see coming that 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 is not as obvious? It's not as obvious. Yeah. Uh, I've been looking at a lot of uh, different parts of the data set that we have. So senior housing is something that um, we know the senior population is increasing at a rapid pace. Birth rates are going down. And that's an area, while it's a small part of of the real estate market, immense opportunity, long-term trends there. Um, and, and there have been numerous studies done on that. And that's something that isn't really talked about that much. No. But it is I hear about multifamily 
you know, yep. three to three times a day, I very rarely hear about senior housing. Senior housing. And I could send, I wish I had the chart here to show um, the, the population of 70 and up in 2050, but it's really stark um, how, how much it's increasing and, and we're going to need it. People are, have longevity has increased. So these are some of the long-term trends that we see in the data. Certainly, I mean, chat GPT, ML, you know, machine learning, um, we hear that every day. That's, um, that's a disruptive force. And the question is, how disruptive is that going to be? And and where do we see that in the future? Is that going to blow over like the dot-com or are we going to see some meaningful change there? Um, but are, from, Schiff, mm-hmm. are, you, are you hearing about that AI chat GPT? Is that buzz from asset managers or from institutional investors, you know, we're, we're hearing that a lot on the fundraising side. So many deals yeah. are coming into the fray, uh, particular, and just saying it's, it's got AI or machine learning. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember back, I'm dating myself with the dot com era. If you had dot com on your, you know, report, <laughs> how you define <laughs> your company, it was like, it, it was that cool thing that would sure. help define you. Um, so it's really, uh, we're seeing an increase there, and certainly, uh, I've tested it. I've played with it. I, I've actually asked it. What are some of the opportunities in alternatives? And the answer was somewhat stale, right? We know that the mm-hmm. data that's trained in ChatGPT is through what 2021. You can't rely on it solely, um, but but there are opportunities to supplement the work you do with research. But you know, you have to vet it for sure. Um, in terms of other trends and themes, you know, um, in terms of office, uh, I see some this, the pendulum actually swinging back to in office. I know it's it's might not be the most popular view, but you see the report. The news came out. BlackRock said staff has to come in four days a week, mm-hmm. and it seems that more and more companies are recognizing that in-office work is meaningful, bringing staff together. I'm not convinced that office is gone um, entirely. And that's a Shifra <laughs> perspective. Um, you know, I love so, it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, and who knows when it's opportune to go in. Um, but we've also seen stories on even family offices looking at U.S. office real estate. And uh, so there are people looking at that. In terms of converting offices to apartments, it's not as easy as as you would think. Um, uh, I've been hearing at the NACRIF conference, there was a topic on converting offices into um, logistics centers and life science centers, which is really fascinating when you think about what would go into that. You need the massive elevators and you need, um, you know, uh, ventilation systems and massive refrigeration units and all of that if you're going to go into life sciences from an office building. So there's a lot of talk of how do you harness these buildings, not leave them as stranded assets. I do believe there's a market for that. And it's just a matter of figuring out, okay, what's the right time to go and um, go into those spaces. Enterprising sponsors take note. No, I, I think those are, I Shifra, I do think those are words of wisdom. And and I love it when people bring up office, honestly. It brings it brings to mind the Warren Buffett quote, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And just some of these asset classes that are like people hear them, but then their their brain is just like fast forward. They're just like, I don't want to talk about office. That probably means that there's a lot of opportunity 
there mm-hmm. right now. Actually, if you're if you're willing to spend time with it, figure it out, take some risk. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we all get paid to take risk on. Well, Shifra, uh, thank you so much for sharing your insights. I want to make sure to link to this report in our show notes. It's called Fundraising from Private Wealth, A Guide to Raising Capital, published by Prequin. Very good report. And that being said, where else can our audience of high net worth investors, advisors, and family offices go to learn more about Prequin and all of your information and services? Absolutely. Um, our URL, www.prequin.com, P-R-E-Q-I-N.com. Mm-hmm. And we actually have, you can sign up for a Prequin First Close, which is free. It's a a daily blog of uh, content about the alternative space. So I highly recommend it. A lot of our uh, research is available uh, on our website free. So definitely take a look at that and reach out to us if you have any questions. Absolutely. And I'm going to make sure to put that newsletter, that blog on the show notes as well. Shifra, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank you. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.